0: Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion
1: people in the world,
0: we all have one thing in common. Every day,
1: we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed: the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Cass, as you know, a few days ago, it
0: officially became summer. And you know what that means. It means it's wedding season. Well, in the US at least, We do recognize that this is uh, still a challenging time for many of the couples who have spent countless hours and probably even more countless dollars planning their weddings for the summer of 2020.
1: I know, and we are sending all of you such good vibes, lots of love, and we hope that your nuptials are able to proceed with your loved ones, albeit likely adapted to the current climate. April, I have read that a lot of weddings have become you know, obviously a lot more intimate uh, in relation to social distancing regulations, but also there's a lot of couples that are getting creative and they're they're making their weddings virtual. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't think anyone could have foreseen our current circumstances, but in the spirit and joy of weddings and all that they represent to so many couples around the world, we thought it might be fun to take a closer look at the history of some wedding traditions. Yes, and we came to this topic via a very specific listener
0: question from listener Taylor who wanted to know more about the history of the wedding garter. And I was most intrigued by this, pretty much started looking into it right away as a topic, and I hit a bit of a snag at first. Initially, the only information I could find on this topic of the history of the wedding garter were these pop culture articles on the topic. And from time to time, as our regular listeners know, we do discuss pop culture articles in the context of contemporary events. But when we're speaking about historical topics, we really do endeavor with all of our
1: might to use historic sources. And trust listeners, I can assure you that April got very excited (laughs) when she stumbled across the source we are going to speak about today because not only does it give a bit of background on the wedding garter, as requested by listener Taylor. It's also this incredible treasure trove of really fun tidbits about many of the wedding traditions we still observe today. That's right. This
0: book, which is called Wedding Customs Then and Now, and its author was Carl Holliday, who was the dean and professor of English at the University of Toledo in Ohio during the 1910s and then moving forward. And the book itself was published in 1919. And while this makes it not exactly a primary source from the period that we're going to speak about today, it turns out that many of our beloved nuptial customs actually date all the way back to the Middle Ages. And so I, I felt like Dr. Holiday's scholastic credentials were strong enough to proceed with us kind of taking this at face value for our purposes today. You know, he published like eight other books on the history of England and the United States. So this is just a little bit of a disclaimer. Today we're exploring this book in particular. I just want to say that. Is there potentially room for additional research? You betcha. Did we exhaust each and every source on the face of the planet working on this mini-sode? We did not. (laughs) So today what we're really doing is we're looking at this particular text from 1919, only this particular text, and a lot of what's detailed in it are how these customs date back to the Middle Ages and the Renaissance periods.
1: Yeah, and this book is uh, 100 years old, so really it's important as a record of scholarship of its own era, as well as how society viewed the topic of marriage in 1919, so that's just after the end of the First World War. Dr. Holiday is quite cheeky and very funny, and this all makes for a rather delightful read. He begins the text in jest, quoting the Greek philosopher Diogenes, who it is said replied to the question of when was the best time to marry with, quote, in youth it is too soon, and in age it is too late. And Doc Holiday, because you know
0: I will look for any excuse to slip in a Doc Holliday reference. Dr. Holliday does indeed take the matter seriously rather quickly and explains to readers how the process of gaining a spouse has changed over history. He says, quote, marriage seems to have passed through three stages of development, marriage through force through contract, and through mutual love, and seems to be, according to some cynics, now in the fourth and last stage, temporary marriage for convenience
1: or social advancement. And we wish we could say that this first stage mentioned of marriage through force was a metaphor, but alas apparently it was the custom of Anglo-Saxon men during the early Middle Ages to enter homes uninvited and claim a bride take her away on a horse with or without her consent so should her male family members object and pursue it was custom to have arranged in advance a close friend to engage them in battle so the potential quote unquote groom could abscond with his prize and get this April Dr. Holliday suggests that scholars older than he had long suggested, that this is where we actually get the term best man, which is super interesting. You picked your best man to fight on your behalf as you kidnapped your bride. I know. I reread that like four times. (laughs) Apparently, this
0: was such a common practice in the 7th century that Ethelbert, King of Kent, passed a decree, quote, that any man now caught stealing a woman should pay 50 shillings to her father and then buy her at a reasonable price. Right. Which, I know, of course leads us to the second stage, which Dr. Holiday referred to marriage through contract. And we do promise listeners, we will address Taylor's question about the wedding garter, but some of this other stuff is just too good to pass up mentioning
1: including the meaning behind this terminology to wed or wedding because, quote, the wed was the money, horses, cattle, or ornaments given as security by the Saxon groom and held by trustees as a pledge and as a proof of the purchase of the bride from her father. And it was actually not uncommon that the sum paid for a particular young woman's hand in marriage would be made public. It was even published in print in magazines and newspapers of the era. Which makes a bit more
0: sense when you factor in that the sum was generally a set standard. It would have been one-third of the bridegroom's property at this time. So in a way, publishing the sum that was paid for a bride was a bit of a brag as to the state of one's finances. And at the time, evidently men also thought of this transaction as, quote, The only fair thing, as he stood to benefit from his wife's domestic labor, potentially even her agricultural work, and as Holliday points out, quote, spinning and cloth-making were a constant source of income. Oh, Cass, and you know, that other thing, gaining a mate and potential mother to one's children.
1: Right. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, the bride had little to no say in the matter of whom she would marry, whether by force or later contractual arrangement and sale. Even high-born women of this period were often cast as pawns to forge familial alliances. Princess Eleanor, for instance, who was the daughter of the King of England, Edward I, she was born in 1269. That is incredibly long time ago. It's amazing to think of it like that. 1269, and she was actually contractually engaged when she was only four days old.
0: Not that she would see her wedding day for years to come, of course, but on this point, I'd like to bring up some other bits about the wedding ceremony as practiced moving forward a bit in time into the Renaissance. And there's this really fun bit about the exchange of rings, because at this time, it was a tad more elaborate, as the groom was supposed to first place the ring on the bride's thumb and then he recited a line of the ceremony and then he removed the ring, placed it on her first finger, recited another line, then proceeded on to the second finger, another line, and finally to the third, the ring finger with the final amen. And and it was a matter of some debate at this time as to which hand one was to wear their wedding ring on. It could be either or perhaps if it was worn Originally, as an engagement ring, it was worn on the right hand, and then it was switched to the left hand during the wedding ceremony. Oh, and another really cool thing, if the particular bride had been married before, she would wear gloves all throughout the ceremony, whereas virgin brides who had never been
1: married before did not wear gloves. Okay, and this next little bit may be both of our favorite parts. It is. Because (laughs) after this exchange of rings— the priest was to, dun dun, dun, dun kiss the groom. Yep. <laughs> I love it. Then the groom kissed the bride, while the priest then also kisses his assistant. Then the assistant goes around and kisses all of the guests. And this was all done in an atmosphere of, you know, incredible merriment. It was not a solemn event at all, but rather joyous. Yes. And how raucous
0: and joyous these festivities became is perhaps evidenced by medieval marriage banquets or Renaissance marriage banquets, which could last anywhere between three and seven days. And it seems like they began straight away after the ceremony, usually at the home of a friend or relative, but before the newly married couple could enter this residence someone would throw a plate out of a high window and if it smashed it was good luck for the couple and this smashing cast seemed to continue on smashing seemed to be a really big thing at this time as another friend was expected to smash an oatmeal cake over the bride's head and then and only then was the groom to carry the bride across the threshold and carry because if she stumbled at all this was also
1: considered bad luck. Okay, this whole smashing of the cake, the throwing <laughs> of grains at a newlywed couple, it's really interesting because we see variations of this as an element of ceremonies marking the union between committed partners all over the world, not just in medieval and Renaissance England. Dr. Holiday notes similarities in customs practiced by Native Americans, for instance, particularly the Haudenosaunee in North America, Fiji Islanders, and even the ancient Romans. And this makes sense if you really think about the fact that grain at this time represented abundance,
0: which in turn implies fertility. So this, friends, is why people in the past have thrown rice at newly married couples. Although now we know this is bad for birds, so more so it's bird seed now or bubbles. But, you know,
1: hundreds and hundreds of years ago, this is where all of these traditions came from. As does the wedding cake, Abundance, plenty being key themes here, medieval wedding guests brought either crackers or spice buns to honor the newlyweds, and these were heaped onto a table. The bride and groom were then supposed to attempt to kiss each other over the pile of pastries for lifelong prosperity. Fast forward, and we have the modern wedding cake with its many tears stacked upon each other.
0: And what would a wedding be without gifts? These were usually presented at some point during the banquet festivities and often included not clothing per se, but accessories. And Cass, you already did this really wonderful episode. I guess it was in season two on the Chatelaine, which was a belt of sorts from which dangled various keys, implements, and tools, but apparently the little instruments and trinkets, which women wore on their Chatelaines, these belts, were very popular wedding gifts.
1: Yes, things like, quote, bodkins and belt knives were popular gifts for wives of Shakespeare's day, while scissors were presented with the hint that if not to her liking, the lady might cut the matrimonial thread. <laughs> As a woman of that period, however, wore in her belt a pair of pincers, a pair of scissors, a penknife, knife, a knife for folding letters, bodkins, ear pickers, a purse, and a case containing scales, hardware, was a very thoughtful and welcome gift. I'm going to have to say, what is a bodkin?
0: Oh, a bodkin. It's like a really long needle and it was used for piercing things. Like you could like pierce like leather with it. Mm. Sometimes they were long and attached to like parts of your clothing as like a functional tool. Interesting. Um, they could be used as a hairpin. They were kind of like a multi-purpose tool. It had a pointed end, but they were very long. Very cool. Yeah. So As promised, we are about to get to Taylor's question about the garter. Our friend, again, Dr. Holliday notes, quote, "'Where the cake has been smashed "'and the gifts presented, "'and where drunkenness and indecency now reign supreme, "'the time is at hand for the guests to depart.'" But that cast does not include the bridesmaids or the groomsmen because the duties of the bridesmaids were not yet over. They were supposed to escort the bride to her wedding chamber and prepare her for her wedding night.
1: But apparently not before the groom's friends were to scramble in an attempt to snatch a souvenir. So a bit of the bride's dress, actually, or the ribbon holding up her. Stockings, scandalous. <laughs> Holiday actually suggests that wise Renaissance brides attached bits of ribbon to the bottoms of their dresses to serve this purpose rather than to have to suffer the indignity of her husband's friends raising her skirts to reach her garter. And we must remember that fully fashioned stockings that cover, you know, your tush and waist would not come on the mainstream market until the 1960s. So all stockings which predate that era were two separate units. And so, of course, they required assistance or something like a garter or a ribbon tied around the over the knee to stay up. After the bridesmaids
0: had undressed their friend and placed her in bed next to the groom who came in a little bit after, then the bridesmaids, two of them, would sit next to their friend with their backs to her, and in their hands would be one of the bride's stockings. And then two groomsmen would do the same thing on the groom's side of the bed with their back to him holding one of his stockings. And each pair of these attendants then takes turns throwing the respective stocking backwards over their shoulder. Basically, the whole point of this game was that the groomsmen were trying to Without looking, toss the groom's stocking and hit the bride on the head, and vice versa with the bridesmaids. They were throwing the bride's stocking, trying to hit the groom in the head. (laughs) Sound a little bit familiar? So whoever whoever hit the person first was the winner, basically. Yeah,
1: yeah. Whoever won this bit of sport was actually deemed to be the next to marry. And April, as I'm sure many of our listeners know that, historically speaking, it wasn't entirely uncommon for wedding guests, friends, relatives to enter the wedding chamber. Across cultures and customs, oftentimes a marital union was not considered official until the marriage was consummated. So... We often quite see quite a bit of ribald jest and play directed at brides and grooms in terms of what was expected of them on their wedding night.
0: Yes. And more contemporary sources have also suggested that as time passed, rather than allowing attendance into the wedding chamber, the groom perhaps removed the bride's garter himself in private and then opened the door and tossed it out to the merry throng of friends on the other side as a sort of symbolic gesture that. The quote-unquote deed has been done. So I was really curious as to when this whole affair shifted over to the wedding custom that some people still practice today, where the garter is removed by the groom at the wedding celebration and in front of the guests. So I went hunting, and the earliest reference I could find for a specialized bridal garter as we know them today dates back to 1920.
1: Women's Wear Daily writes, quote, Paris sets new vogue in decorative garters. In view of the extremely short skirts that the Parisians are wearing, a new vogue for elaborate garters has suddenly sprung up, end quote. Amongst the offerings, a bridal garter in, quote, pale green silk interwoven with silver thread and trimmed with a rose, end quote. And not long after, we see many bridal garters offered in white and blue, trimmed with orange blossom motifs, which orange blossoms was quite popular. It symbolized abundance and like various grains, had been another plant associated with matrimony for actually centuries. And as we have
0: already noted, prior to this, Time in speaking in terms of fashion history, garters were not seen. So there was no particular reason for them to be decorative. And this is what makes this little bit about decorative garters so interesting here, because, you know, in the 20s, hemlines have now risen and oopsies, one just might catch a glimpse of a lady's garter. So my question is might this be around the same time when Victorian morals kind of gave way to a more public practice of the wedding garter tradition as practiced, seen at the ceremony, you know, around the same time when we see society at large becoming more accepting of viewing women's
1: legs. The answer to this, Dress listers, is perhaps. I mean, this is something which we could not really find any specific record of in readily available primary sources at the moment, when many of us have restricted access, of course, to resources due to COVID. There's absolutely information out there, but perhaps the best source is asking all of our older relatives. Yes. And we would love actually to hear from you if you have a chance to chat with your mothers, your grandmothers, about what the wedding garter tradition looked like for them. Yes,
0: we would really, really love that. And, And, you know, sometimes our fashion history mysteries remain just a little bit of that, you know, these mysteries waiting and wanting to be solved. But Taylor, we hope that answers a bit of your question. We do know that certain aspects of the modern day wedding garter custom dates back at least to the Middle Ages in what is now Britain. And perhaps many of these customs are even older. And that is the thing about traditions, right? You know, the symbolism... And the practice of them are handed down from generation to generation. And sometimes along the way, the exact meaning of it may get lost or morph and change over the course of time. So we tugged that thread just a little bit today, but I'm certain that there is a lot more to say on this for
1: sure. Trust listeners, that does it for us today. May you consider the legacy of union in your closet next time you get dressed. We would also like to wish everyone happy Pride this week and note that this, yes, happy Pride. Um, This week also is the five-year anniversary of federal marriage equality for same-sex couples in the United States. So that's a huge milestone, huge marker. Let's keep pushing forward, friends. We still have so much work to do in terms of social justice and creating a level playing field for all of us in the quote-unquote land of the free. Please join us on Tuesday for our full-length episode. We
0: love hearing from you, and if you would like to submit your own question for a future fashion history mystery, please email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is where we post images to accompany
1: each week's show. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you on Tuesday.